morning, y'all. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Hey, I want to give you a couple of things, quick things. It was okay to clap. Um, man, was that worship music just awesome. Um, awesome, awesome. Messages in each one of those uh, songs that we just uh, sang to the Lord. I want to give you a couple of things before we jump in. Number one is this. They mentioned, uh, Sydney mentioned the connection card. If this is your first time here, um, I would love to get this little welcome kit in your hands. Um, I say I would. I'm not fixing to jump down there and come bring it to you, but somebody will. So if you would raise your hand if this is your first time here visiting with us, we want to get one of those in your hand, number one. Number two is this. This week, culminating in, in Saturday, this next Saturday, um, there is a global, a national and a global movement of prayer and fasting going on and really is a global movement culminating in on Saturday on the mall in, uh, in D.C., a huge prayer um, walk, ultimately, a huge prayer walk in D.C. And here's the way that I want us as a church family to participate in this, is I would love it if everybody, if you're watching online, if you would do this as well and everybody that's here, if every day this week, starting tomorrow, if you would fast something, whatever it may be, give something up each day, and if it's, and don't give up something that you don't really care about because then you didn't really give anything up. So you want to, the nature of sacrifice is there's a sacrifice. So if, uh, if it's social media, for example, every time that you think about Facebook, get on your knees and pray for our country, for our leaders. Pray that we would bring light into a dark world. Y'all, there, there is such a spiritual battle between truth and lies today. We need to convey and display light and truth to a dark, lost, broken world. And so I want us to do that uh, this week. At the end of the week, on Sunday, next Sunday, which I think is the 27th. Somebody help me out if next Sunday is the 27th or not. Sundown Sunday night to sundown Monday night, I want us to fast as a church family. Fast, don't eat anything. I want you to just be in prayer, just pretty much, you know, ceaselessly, ceasingly, all, you know, all, all from Sunday to Monday. But pray with intent, y'all. Pray God hears our prayers. And our country and the people, we're buying lies. We're buying lies, and I don't want us to buy lies. We need to be purveyors and lovers of truth, right? Lovers of truth. And so I wanted, that's the way that we all as a church family can participate in that. So I encourage, I encourage y'all to do that. So uh, we are in week three of a series called Set Free. We're looking at Paul's letter to the church in Rome and what it, what it says about freedom, real freedom, authentic freedom, genuine freedom. Last week, if you remember, we were in the last half of chapter six. Uh, the last half of chapter 6, and we talked about the power of choice. If you remember, Zach, will you hand me that shirt right there? Um, we talked about the power of choice, and we landed on three truths. Just throw it right there, it's cool. Uh, the power of choice. We landed on three truths, if you remember. Um, number one is you're going to choose, you're going to choose one way or the other what to be a slave to. You're going to choose what to be a what or who to be a slave to. Number one, number two, you choose sanctification. You choose 
to grow one direction or the other. You're going to grow as your life kind of rolls on out, number two. And number three, at the end of the day, ultimately you choose to say yes or you choose to say no to salvation. At the end of the day, really eternal life or eternal death lies in the power of choice. Me and you have a what? Chooser. Now, the first person that can tell me anatomically where the chooser is, you get a T-shirt. Oh, my gosh. I just got blown away. So Allison, whose hand went up first? What did you say? Where is it? Down there by the appendix. Um, so Zach gave me the shirt off the chair, and I turned around and give it back um, over there. So we have a chooser. We talked about that, y'all. The power of choice, and we choose, and that was the latter part of chapter 6 of Romans. But here, the, the, it's one thing for me and you to understand that our identification with, with Jesus Christ, that it, that it means, it's one thing to understand that it means that we've died to sin and that we ought to live a life that is worthy of all of that. That is chapter 6 of Romans probably in a nutshell, but y'all, it's a totally another thing. It's something else altogether for us to deal with what's left behind, the sin nature that is left behind inside of us and the way that that sin nature tries to express itself in our thoughts and in our behavior and our actions. That right there is this internal conflict that all of us have, and it really plays out in the area of sanctification in the area, in the, in the way that we grow throughout our life. And that's what Paul begins to address in chapter 7 of Romans. So today we're going to look at chapter 7, particularly we're going to be in verses 7 through 13. So let's look at, at verse 7. Paul says, what, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. And so if you remember back when we started a couple months ago, a few months ago, when we started this walk through Romans, I told you all that the scene in the whole book of Romans is like a courtroom. It's like a courtroom and there's a prosecutor and there's, there's the defense. It's like there's an objector. We'll call him this mythical sort of objector who is hitting Paul with questions throughout the book of Romans. And Paul is throughout the book of Romans, making a claim for the gospel of Christ and everything that that gospel entails. And so this lawyer, this, this lawyer, this objector for the prosecution, he says, is the law sin? Was the law evil? And man, that is a super legit question. You think about what Paul, even up to this point in Romans, what Paul has said about the law, that question is a legit question. It's a totally legit question. Let me just give you a little bit. Now, let me tell you this. When Paul talks about the law, what he's really talking about is the commandments in the Scripture. He's talking about Moses goes up on a mountain, he comes down with the law. And many Jewish um, scholars and historians believe that, Moses, uh, that God sort of downloaded the entire Pentateuch to Moses. Um, but for sure, he comes down with the tablets with the Ten Commandments. And so when Paul is talking about the law, he's kind of talking about the entirety of the commandments that are contained in the, in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And so let me give you just a little bit, a little snippet of what Paul has said thus far through Romans about the law. 
in chapter 2, he said the law judges and, he condemn, and it condemns man. He said uh, in chapter 3, he said the law can't make us righteous. It, it, the law can't make us acceptable to God. In chapter 4, he says uh, the, the law is not the way that a, that a person uh, experiences the promises of God. A little bit later in chapter 4, he says that the law works wrath, W-R-A-T-H. The law works wrath and it accuses man of sin and it condemns man. And I could go on and on in those first six chapters of what Paul says about the law. So the question is a legit question. Is the law sin? Is the law evil? It just seems natural for us, particularly looking backwards, to say law equals bad. And I hear it all the time. And people say it innocently enough, we're not under law, we're under grace in the New Testament. Well, okay, for sure grace. But that doesn't mean that we take the law and just boot it off to the curb, that it's irrelevant. So be careful the way that you look at that, and we're going to talk at length about that today. Um, so, so it's natural to ask that question, to ask it, to question the value of the law. You know, if, if the law lays such a burden of sin upon man, what good is it? It's got to be evil. Well, not so fast, Kemosabe, because what does Paul say? By no means. God forbid. Let it never be. What's the Ed translation of by no means? Are you crazy? So no. Paul says no, by no means. That's our first point here really is that the law is not sin and the law is not evil. Now the law clearly has a purpose and that's where we're headed today. So number one is that the law reveals the fact of sin. It reveals the fact of sin. Sin exists. The world tells you that sin doesn't exist. The world tells you that what's right for you is right and what's right for me is right and okay. But here's the reality. There are things that are absolutely right and absolutely wrong that transcend time and culture, right? Does that make sense? If something is right for you and it's completely the opposite for me, it doesn't work that way, y'all. It doesn't work that way. There, sin is a fact. And so the first thing, the law reveals the fact of sin. And apart from the law apart from really the existence of the law, me and you, we would be aware of some acts, some stuff, that that stuff is wrong because there is, an, on, in, on the inside of us, we have kind of an internal thing that tells us that some things are right, some things are wrong. Steal and murder, clearly. But there'd be a whole lot of things, a whole lot of stuff that we would not know was wrong if we didn't have the law. A lot that we would desperately need to know in order to live a life uh, that is full of peace. So the law reveals first the fact of sin, the fact that we're not in a right relationship with God, the fact that our relationships are jacked up with each other, the fact that we're living selfishly, the fact that we're coveting, and the fact that we lust. And by doing that, we're destroying our future and we're destroying our world. And then it reveals the fact that we are displeasing God and that we're unacceptable to Him. The point is this. The real first point 
is when I get to a point, when you get to a point in our lives where we can see the fact of sin, the fact that I am a sinner, that's, we got to get to that point before we can at least even begin to try to figure out what to do about it. Look, the knowledge of sin is a glorious thing. That sounds super weird. But the knowledge of sin is a glorious thing. But without the law, we'd all be wandering around ignorant. We'd kind of not be knowing what was right or wrong, what, uh, what was dooming us and what would, would liberate us. If there was no restraint, if there was no law, if there were no commandments, every man would be doing what he wants, whatever he wants. He'd be doing his own thing. He'd be fulfilling his own desires regardless of the consequences, regardless of the fallout and the hurt that it causes other folks. So the law awakens us to a couple of things about sin. Number one, I said a minute ago that it actually exists. We would not know that coveting is wrong unless Exodus 20 tells us don't covet. We know some things are good, some things are bad because the law tells us. We know some things please and displease God because the law tells us. In other words, the law clues me and you in on what the nature and what the will of God is. The law clues us in on what it takes to be acceptable to him. The law uh, reveals to us the fact that I am unquestionably a sinner. The reality that I am definitely a sinner. It shows us, y'all, that we, that we don't do the will of God, that that we're guilty of acting in defiance to his nature, that, we are, that we're imperfect, that we're guilty of violating his word, that, that by being short of his glory, that, that we are unacceptable to him. And then third, the law reveals the fact of our sinful nature, that man is actually stimulated, that man is actually aroused to do many things that are forbidden. Now, this next sentence, and it's true, is, is a little tough to, to stomach because the world is going to tell you the opposite of this. The law shows me and you that we are sinful, depraved, polluted, and corrupt. That's our nature. The world is, my mama told me. I said, mama, what do you, do you think man is basically good or basically bad? And she said, well, basically good. And I said, well, what in the world evidence do you have for that? Like whatever the evidence is that we are basically corrupt and depraved when we're born. The law shows us that we covet, that we lust, that we enjoy, that we're aroused to grab the last cookie out of the cookie jar and not tell Susan that we took the last cookie out of the cookie jar. The, 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 the law arouses us, things that are forbidden, the law arouses us to, to drink the last of the milk and if you're a man, you put it back in the refrigerator empty, which makes no sense. But to drink the last of the milk, not tell Susan that you drank the last of the milk, it arouses us to want what our neighbor has, to, to run after excitement and, and, and the stimulation of things that are forbidden. It stimulates us to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of our eyes, the pride of life. The bottom line is this. The purpose of the law is to reveal sin. 
so that not just to reveal sin, but so that we become self-aware, that we become aware of our nature, that we become aware of the sin. Apart from that, we would have no idea that we need to be saved. We would have no idea of our lostness. I love Galatians 3.24. I love the King James translation of this verse. And Paul wrote, the law was our schoolmaster. It was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was our teacher to bring us to Christ so that we could be justified by what? Faith, not by checking boxes, by faith. It was our schoolmaster. Y'all, the problem is not with the law. It's not with the law. Any of y'all lactose intolerant or know somebody that is lactose intolerant? So lactose intolerance is an allergy to what? To milk. It's an allergy to milk. The problem with that condition, it doesn't lie in the milk. It lies in the, in the biochemical makeup of the person. The flaw is in the person that drinks the milk. Not in the milk. The milk just reveals the fact that something's wrong. It doesn't cause the problem. The law of God is perfect in every detail. There's nothing wrong with the law, but there is something wrong with me, and there is something wrong with you. The law reveals the fact of sin. And then the law gives sin the opportunity to be aroused. The law gives sin the opportunity to be aroused and to work like all kinds of evil. Look at the specific words in verse 8 of Romans 7. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And that, that word here in Romans 7 is a weird word, covetousness. It really means longing or lusting for. It even is translated all kinds of evil. It's not just covet. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So sin uses the commandment. Sin grabs a hold of and uses the law. Sin's not within the commandment. It's separate from it. The law's not sinful. Sin is within man. Sin is not within the law. Me and you in our, in our depraved sort of nature, we have inside of us the, the principle of sin the tendency to sin, the fondness of sin. We love the sin. We have the urge to sin. Our flesh is diseased. We have a selfish appetite. We have a self-centered mind. It's all about me, me, me. And spiritually, we are dead. We are dead now without Christ. Christ brings us to life. We sang three songs a little while ago about that. Two quick points here. The law actually stirs up and arouses sin to work out in our lives evil. Tell the truth. When somebody tells you not to do something, is there not something inside of you, even if you didn't want to do it until they told you not to do it, there's something inside of us that makes us want to do it. Tell the truth. Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. And if you ain't got your hand up, you are absolutely lying because that is, that's what happens. Not to do something or not to eat something or not to whatever because in, immediately we say, well, you ain't the boss of me. Don't be telling me what to do. I'm a grown man. 
that's what that's our nature, right? And then number two, it is us that take and misuse and abuse the law. The law doesn't take and, and, and abuse and misuse man. The law doesn't violate man. Man violates the law. It's not the commandments that grab man and force man to sin. It's man that takes the commandments and breaks them. The law's not evil. It's good. Gloriously good. Why is it gloriously good? Because it shows me and you our desperate need for salvation, our desperate need for rescue. So the law stirs up an opportunity for us to sin. And then the law reveals the fact of condemnation and death. Look at verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Look at that first, those first few words. I was once alive apart from the law. I thought, I thought that I was alive apart from the law. I think. The reality is the guy that doesn't know the law, the guy that, that doesn't pay attention to the law, he feels alive. He thinks he's free. He thinks he's free. He's not, quote, aware of the law. So he doesn't pay attention to his sin. And typically, folks like that, they have little or no consciousness of sin. They have no consciousness of guilt. They have no fear uh, of punishment. They have no fear of death. They have no sense of judgment. Again, I asked my family, what happens when you die? And they said, I, I don't care, I'll be dead. That is purity hopelessness, y'all. You know, this guy that lives apart from it, he probably feels safe and he feels secure and he feels confident that, that God approves of him. He says, I'm good, like I'm okay. He feels alive and he's just really unconcerned. He's just unconcerned. But then you got this other guy who does pay attention to the law and does know the commandments, and that guy sees sin come alive. He becomes acutely aware of it when he breaks it. He becomes acutely aware of the commandment when he breaks a commandment. He has a painful awareness of sin. He has a, experiences a sense of guilt. He has a, a sense of that there will be a judgment to come. He fears punishment, and he fears spiritual death outside of Christ. It's the law that shows him that he's a sinner who is going to face condemnation and death without Christ. It's that that, that, that that shows him that he needs to be delivered from all of that, that he desperately needs a, a Savior who can make him acceptable to God. And y'all, here's another little point that I believe is true. I think the law is ordained to bring life, but not in the way that we think, not in the way that people tend to think. We think that if we can keep it, we think that if we can check all the boxes, I did this, I did this, I did this, I didn't murder, I didn't covet, I didn't steal. If we, if we can do all of that, then we will be acceptable to God. If we can do all that, we can work our way into heaven. And even, even if we do our best, that God's just going to throw us a bone and say, well, I see you did your best, and in the world, everybody gets a trophy. Well, it ain't like that. 
I believe that the law provides life in this way. It destroys our selfishness. It destroys our self-centeredness. It reveals truth to us. It reveals our true condition. It reveals our lostness. It shows us that we're corrupt and sinful. It shows us and demonstrates to us that we need to be delivered from sin and from death. It proves that we desperately need a Savior. And so if we examine the law, if we really dig in and examine Scripture, it will expose our true condition, that we're corrupt and that we're all without Christ, destined for condemnation. And y'all, it seems like to me that fact, and I know I'm a simple man, but it seems like that ought to drive us to seek the salvation that the Lord offers. Listen, it's like a, a parable. It's like a mirror. The law is like a mirror. When you look into the bathroom mirror, you see hair that needs to be combed. Some of you see hair that needs to be combed. I see a head that needs to be polished. But you see a face that's dirty and needs to be cleaned. You see a tie. If you wear a tie, you see a tie that needs to be straightened up. The mirror reveals to us what's wrong that needs to be made right. The mirror doesn't actually comb the hair or polish the head or wash the face or straighten the tie. It is only there to reveal, not to fix, not to repair. The mirror is like the law. It is a reflector. It shows you what's wrong. It shows you what you really are. But the law cannot fix your problem. The law has never been able to fix your problem. The Jews got it wrong. The law was never intended to, to, to bring you salvation in and of itself. It reveals your problem. It can show you sin. It can show you the dirt. It can show you the grime. But what the law couldn't do, Christ did. Christ fixed it. And lots and lots of folks, lots, think and feel that in order to be made right with God, that they have to keep all the law. And y'all, there's not 10, there's 613 commandments. And the problem is, me and you on our very best day, we ain't been awake 10 minutes before we busted one or two of those 613. So on our best day, we can never, ever, ever satisfy the demands of a holy God. So the law reveals the fact of condemnation, and then it reveals the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 11, for sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Through it, killed me. Remember now, it's the sin that takes the law and misuses it. It's sin that takes the law and, and deceives us. Well, how does it deceive us? A couple of ways. It deceives us, and they're total opposites. The first way I think it deceives us is it makes us feel like we're okay. It makes us feel like we're safe. It's the other guy that's jacked up. He's just a little more jacked up than me, right? I'm okay. Self-righteousness says, I can obey the law, and if I obey the law, I'm going to live. And that statement in itself is nonsense because I'm not going to be able to perfectly obey the commandments. But we're, in, we're deceived into thinking that if we do our best, I said it a minute ago, everybody gets a trophy. If we do our best, then we'll be okay. And so we feel safe and we feel secure. Now, the other way that it deceives us is the total opposite of that. Sin abuses the law and deceives us and dis it, it, by discouragement. 
It makes us feel hopeless. It makes us feel helpless. It deceives us into believing that we should be able to keep the law and then we fail 10 minutes into the day and we get discouraged and we get depressed and we feel hopeless and we feel helpless and we say, well, I'm just a, I'm just a failure. I'm a miserable failure. Sin takes the law and it beats you up with it. It takes the Bible and it wops you up across the, uh, across the head with it. And it's all to make you feel unworthy and to make you feel hopeless, to drive you into despair and discouragement. Y'all, sin is a liar. It is an absolute deceptive scumbag liar. Don't listen to it. Sin makes promises it'll never fulfill. Look, it's like, here's another parable. Anybody have an invisible fence? I used to have two black labs and Rudy, Rudy the dachshund. Rudy actually ruled over the two black labs. One of the labs' name was Lacey, super obedient. The other one's name was Apollo. Apollo was super disobedient. Apollo, and you know, anybody ever feel the shock that the collars do? No, okay. It don't feel good. Did you mean to feel the shock? Or did you shock him? <laughs> Not smart. So they don't feel good. And we would have it cranked up because these dogs were about 90, you know, 90 pounds. I mean, it'll tickle your toes, right? Well, Apollo would go and they learn the distance because it's audible, right? They learn the distance they get from that invisible fence and it chimes, you know, in the little collar. And it warns them, any closer, you're going to get popped. Well, Apollo would come up to, the, up to the invisible fence and whatever was on the other side, it's like he would sit there and decide, is it worth it, is it worth it, is it worth it, is it worth it? And then he'd jump across and take it. And I mean, midair, he'd be like this. But he, sin, deceived him. It sin is a squirrel, I don't know, but something over there looked good. Sin looks good, man. The devil's not coming at you with a pitchfork. You know, the, the, the devil's coming at you, if you're a man, probably in an attractive woman in the break room at the office. You know, sin is coming at you in an attractive way, but it is a liar. And whatever it's promising, whatever's on the other side of that invisible fence, you're going to get popped. Somehow or the other, you're going to get popped because it has deceived you into thinking that it's worth it. It's not worth it. It's not. So every time, so I guess every man should give his wife a remote control, and we should all wear shock collars or something. I don't know. And body cams. I don't know, something like that. But listen, sin, my point is sin makes promises, and it is a deceiver. It is a deceiver. Now, I didn't say the law was a liar. I said sin was a liar. The law was never designed to drive you into despair and discouragement and, and, and depression. It's sin that drives men to despair and women to despair and, and, and depression. Jacked up minds and ungodly thoughts is what drive you into a state of hopelessness. The law was given to reveal sin to men. And it's not like man was sinless until Moses went up on the mountain and came down with the law. People were sinning, folks were sinning, and folks were dying already. Look, God gave us the law. God gave us the commandments because he loved us. That probably sounds weird. 
He gave us the, the law. He gave us the commandments because he loved us and he knew that we needed something to point us towards his son. Left without it, we would be clueless. So he loved us. He gave us the word and the word points us towards Christ. That is the beautiful purpose of the law. It's far from being evil. And so then the law reveals the way to God. The law reveals his way, holiness and righteousness and goodness. Look at verse, look at verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's holy. It's set apart. It's consecrated. It reveals God's nature. It reveals God's will to us. It points towards God's way, and that's a way of holiness, a way to live life, to live a life of holiness, to grow and to be sanctified. The law is just, it's impartial, it's equitable. It shows us exactly the way that we should live, how to live in relationship with him, how to live in relationship with other people. And so Paul tells us in this verse, point blank, he says the law is good. And he says it's not just good, it's holy. It's holy. Psalm 19, written a thousand years earlier. Just look at what David wrote. The law is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Its precepts are right. The commandment is pure. And you know what it does? Just look what it does. It revives the soul. It makes us wise. It calls us simple, but it says the law makes us wise. It makes our hearts rejoice, and it enlightens our eyes. That's what David wrote that God's word does. What a beautiful, beautiful image of God's word. So the law reveals God's way to me and you, a way that is perfect and holy and just and good. And lastly, the law reveals the nasty. The law reveals the nastiness and the, and the disgust of sin and that it is sin that causes death, not the law. Verse 13 says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Our objector here, our prosecutor, the prosecutor in our courtroom here, he almost is like rewording and expanding what he asked in verse 7. It's like he's saying, all right, Mr. Paul, you telling me that the law is good, okay, I kind of get that, but I still don't get how something good can bring death to me. And Paul says, by no means. Absolutely not. God forbid. He says, no, man, it is sin. It's not the law. He says we need to know the extent of the nasty of sin. We need to know that it is the absolute worst possible affront to God, the, the worst imaginable rebellion against God, that it is against all that God represents. The law proves, y'all, that sin is anti-everything that God is about. It is against all that he is. It is against his nature. It is against his will. It is selfish. It is destructive. It is dirty. It is ugly. It is impure. And the law, Paul says, is the very opposite of that. Take murder, the act of murder, lay it against the commandment, thou shalt not murder. So I got the commandment here, I got the act here. Look at the contrast. The commandment protects man's life. The act removes man's life. The commandment protects 
man's presence with his loved one. The loved ones. The act removes his presence from the loved ones. The commandment protects man's contribution to society. The act eliminates man's contribution to society. The commandment says that man could live, but the sin says, no, 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 you can't live. It's that way with every sin. If it's stealing or adultery or, or taking the Lord's name in vain, the law was given to make me and you think about our sin and our condition and ultimately our desperate need for Christ. We'll finish today with a, a parable, another parable. And it is like it is like this woman who had a husband, and the husband kept a list. And this list the husband kept had 25 things on it, 25 to-dos. It was a checklist with neat little boxes to the left of every, of every little line. It was the things that he decided he said she should do to be a good wife to him. And every day he took out the list and he checked things off the list, cooked, check, cleaned, check, took the kids to soccer, check. Every day he did these things. And at the end of every day, he would let her know how she scored. And on Wednesday, she scored 21 out of 25. Well, on Tuesday, she had scored 23 out of 25. He said, baby, you got to do a little better. You know, you went down from 23 to 21. She was miserable. Shocker. She was miserable. Because she didn't get married to be tied to a checklist. And not that the things on the list were unimportant. They were important. And they were necessary. But she had had higher hopes for her marriage, much higher hopes for her marriage. Well, after a number of years of living with that list, every single day living with that list, her husband passed away. She didn't kill him now. Her husband passed away. Natural causes. But the woman, honestly, she felt liberated, like she felt like this huge burden had been lifted up off of her shoulders because she'd been performing every single day, day after day. You ever feel like you're performing every day? You feel like you're checking boxes and you got to perform in a certain way. You're on the stage every day. So anyway, she'd been doing her duty and hated every minute of doing her duty. Even when the duties were not innately bad themselves. Well, two years later, this woman fell in love with a new guy. Madly in love with a new guy, a guy that was not all about lists. He was not all about checking uh, stuff off of a list. All he wanted to do is for her to know how much he loved her. That's all he wanted to do. He wanted to tell her all the time how much he loved her. He wanted her to wake up in the morning every single day and know how much that he loved her. In fact, she had a book on her night table, and that book, here's a shocker, it was about this thick. It looked something like this. And all that book said on every page was, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And it was from him. He wanted her going to sleep thinking about how much he loved her. He wanted her waking up in the morning thinking about how much he loved her. He wanted to be able to call her throughout the day and just tell her how much he loved her. He wanted every waking moment of her life for her to know and feel how much he loved her. One day she's in the kitchen cleaning up the house. Cleaning up the house, she opens up a drawer. In the back of the drawer kind of crumbled up as a piece of paper. She opens it up and guess what it was? It was a checklist from husband 
number one. And she looked at it and she started to giggle. And she's giggling because she realized that all 25 of the things on that checklist were happening effortlessly in her new marriage. Everything that she hated doing out of requirement by the first husband, she was doing for the second husband out of love. She was just doing it because she loved him and because she knew that he loved her. Y'all, the second husband, he was all about love. And it brought joy to this woman. It brought joy to her home and everything that she did. She was overpowered and overwhelmed with love. And so she lived her life in a manner that was worthy of the love that the husband had for her. Let me say that again. She lived her life in a manner that was worthy of the love that the husband had for her. Y'all, we don't act and do and behave because there's some checklist that says don't do this and don't do that. And don't hate the checklist. We do this and that because we have a God that loves us. And he loved us enough to give us that law. He loved us enough to give us that law to point us toward his son. Man, I hope that makes sense. Don't hate the law. Love the law because it drove you to Christ. I think of my own life. I would never have landed at the foot of the cross had it not been for the law. Never. Because I would never have landed at the foot of the cross without acknowledging my own sinfulness. So don't remove that from the gospel. Because that's an integral part of the gospel. If I don't know I'm jacked up, then I don't know that I need to be unjacked up. There's another made-up word for this Sunday. Hashtag Christ makes you unjacked up. I don't know. Under, hashtag what? I hear adverb. Ha! Here's the point. There's a book, and it looks something like this, and it is a love letter. And yes, there's wrath in it. And yes, there is a demand for repentance. There's not a demand for perfection. There's a demand for repentance. And so if this is you today and you want to experience that love, let it be today, man. Let it be today that you say, I acknowledge my sin and I repent of my sin. And I believe, Lord, that you died on that cross to pay the penalty for that sin. And Lord, save me right now. If that is you, you're watching online, or if that is you, Sitting here, pray this prayer with me, and when we're done, I want you to fill out a little connection card. Let us know that that happened. Let us know today is the day that you went from dead to, to alive, that you went from death to life. And we want to walk that with you, and our prayer team is in the back, and they would love to pray with you. So if that is you today, pray this with me. Lord, today is the day that I repent of my sin. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I repent of it. I turn away from the sin. I turn towards you. And Lord, I believe, I believe that you died on that cross to save me. Lord, save me right now. In Jesus' name, amen. The last thing I would tell those of you that are Christ followers, you might have gotten saved last week, last year, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Live a life in a manner that is worthy 
of the love that he showed you.